0: If you have a Bible, please turn with me to Psalm 23. Uh, We're finishing our four-week series in this Psalm, and I encourage you at the beginning of it to memorize Psalm 23. I encourage you all, of course, to uh, take that time that it was worth doing it. You know, I in talking with a lot of you. Some of you have amazing abilities. You have sports statistics memorized. You have recipes memorized. You have lyrics to every song on the radio memorized. Um... So I encourage you to memorize Psalm 23 because uh, that's the only Psalm that will do your soul any good. Um, and so uh, I encourage you, it's not too late. Today is my, my fourth opportunity, my fourth chance to convince you that it's worth doing so. Uh, we're looking at the last two verses, verses five and six, and I've entitled the sermon called The Host. And so please stand. And in our standing, uh, we read and receive God's word as an act of worship that we humbly Um, hear from our God who speaks to us in his word. So I'm reading Psalm 23, verses five and six. Hear now God's word. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. And would you join me once more in prayer? Father, we humbly acknowledge that all of your scriptures are a gift given to us. Particularly though, we thank you for Psalm 23. And this morning, we thank you for verses 5 and 6. We pray that by the power of your spirit, illuminating our hearts to the word that he has inspired in history past, that we would receive comfort and hope and that, oh Lord, your word would prove to do its work in us by sealing our hearts with your promises, leading us to Christ, helping us worship, instructing us as the people of God and uniting us around the Lord who speaks to us because he is so kind. Plus, now the preaching of your word, we pray and we ask in Jesus' name, amen. You must have noticed that the past few weeks, the weather has been increasingly intense and hot. The temperature seems like it's consistently in the 90s. And then if you check your phone, it's even hotter than that, uh, which has made this one thing so clear and so true, which is uh, there's no place like the indoors. There's no place like a building with AC. There's no place in this sanctuary like in the middle where it is the coldest. And that's because when you're outside and it's hot and you're sweating, to be brought indoors is such a refreshing, rejuvenating, uh, restful change. And I bring this up because if you've ever been outside when it's hot and then been brought indoors, then you already understand a good part of Psalm 23. Because Psalm 23 is all about a change of scenery. You know, the past few weeks we covered David leading us in uh, the green pastures and the long still waters. Uh, last week we saw how um, David showed us the depth of the valley. But today we see something entirely different. We've been brought inside. Inside. If you're the original audience, you understand the relief that this change of scenery brings. You have to understand that Philly summers are hot, but Middle Eastern summers, Palestinian summers are hotter. In fact, it was so hot in the Middle East that if you were a woman and you went to get water at the well, you wouldn't go at certain hours of the day. It was simply too hot. You know, if you know the topography of the Middle East, there are whole riverbeds that are completely dried up and they form what we call wadis, that if you look sometimes the earth out in the desert is cracked because it's been so, the the heat is so scorching, it begins to break up the earth. In fact, this is such an interesting thing about the Bible. When the Bible describes heaven, listen to how Revelation describes heaven to us. In heaven, they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. What is heaven? Heaven is escape from this hot sun. You see, it's clear that this move from being outside in the rough outdoors to the refreshing indoors is a signal. it, 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 It symbolizes ultimate hope and rest and relief. But that's not the only thing that changes in Psalm 23. It's not only the location that changes, it's the metaphor, the overarching metaphor. Because in verses 1 to 4, God is shepherd, we are sheep. But now in verses 5 and 6, God is host and we are honored guests. It changes the way we approach the Psalm. And that's important because in the culture of the Bible, hospitality was central and it was cherished. And for God to be described as the great host of heaven, receiving us to indwell in his house forever, meant something so much more to the original audience than it does to us. And so we need to get into their shoes. We need to understand this. Because I believe what Psalm 23 is getting us to do is to dwell on heaven's home, the hope of eternity, dwelling in God's house forever. And the question is, are your thoughts often fixed on heaven's hope. We're so preoccupied, so consumed with life in the pasture and life in the valley, we forget that we're actually headed somewhere. You know, C.S. Lewis, who said in Mere Christianity, a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. That thinking of heaven, having it fill your thoughts, isn't simple escape. It's not equivalent of Netflix and vegging out and escaping reality, nor is it wishful thinking, hopeful yet naive optimism. No, this is the basis of the Christian faith. Christians should think and dwell on and reflect on and meditate on heaven because that is where we will dwell forever, David says. And so we're going to spend our time thinking of our eternal home in heaven. Here's the gospel truth, the one sentence summary of our sermon today. The heavenly host offers us the hope of heaven's home. The heavenly host offers to us the hope of heaven's home. And as the great host of heaven, according to Psalm 23, God does for us two things. God prepares for us a table and he prepares for us a home. That's what we're going to see in verses five and six. He prepares for us a table and he prepares for us a home. So here's the very first point. God, he himself prepares for us a table. If you look down with me at verse five, David writes, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Now here's what you need to understand about the Bible. In the time, in the culture, preparing a meal for an honored guest was something that required a lot of work. It was a big deal. Whenever a visitor, strangers, guests were welcomed into somebody's house, it wasn't only one person who got busy, the whole household got busy. The children got busy, the parents got busy, the household servants got busy. Why? Because when you invited somebody and you hosted them, cakes were prepared. A calf was slaughtered. Choice wine was brought out because in the Bible, hospitality, which was ordinary, it was commonly practiced, it was difficult because they didn't have all the modern amenities. They didn't have a grocery store, a Costco, a BJ's, a Sam's Club. You couldn't order online, do DoorDash, Uber Eats. You can't get curbside pickup. Everything that you prepare needs to be made. There were no bakeries. There were no butchers. There were no breweries. You brewed your own drink. You baked your own bread. You butchered your own calf. There were no freezers, no refrigerators, right? They didn't have the glory of the marvel known as the air fryer. They didn't have microwaves or stoves or ovens. And that's why when you hosted somebody, it was such an act of love. There was no greater way to display an act of service and of love and of warm welcome than to host somebody. I've received that from many of you, and I always feel it. I know it. It takes a lot of work. I decided this a few weeks ago, two weeks ago, to uh, try my own hand at hospitality. We had uh, one of our church-supported missionaries, John Lee, uh, headed off for Cambodia, where he would begin his long-term missions. And uh, knowing that this was one of his last meals in America before moving, I felt uh, the privilege and the responsibility of making sure he was well fed. And so I decided to do something that I don't think I've done for any of you, which is I cooked for him. And as a display of my love and affection, I began preparing this meal. I mean, I remember going to bed thinking about what I was going to prepare because as far as I was concerned, he was going out into a remote village in Cambodia. And when he's suffering on the mission field, I wanted him to remember that wonderful meal Andrew prepared back before I left. And so I worked hard. I labored. I went grocery shopping. I I envisioned the, 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 the plate in my head and how the garnish would look. And then he came over. Let me just say hospitality is a lot easier imagined than done um, because hours of work went into this. And long story short, uh, we ended up eating pizza at Palermo's afterwards uh, because hospitality is a lot easier imagined than prepared. Being a good host, showing hospitality for an honored guest is no easy task. It requires much out of a person when done properly and lovingly. And kind of knowing this actually helps us make sense. Remember that story in Luke 10, Mary and Martha, and Jesus comes by and Mary's sitting at the feet and Martha's so angry. And we're like, take a chill pill. Why are you so angry? Well, it's because hospitality, hosting someone requires so much effort. And so when your team should be two, but only one person's pulling the weight, you get frustrated. And so with all that in mind, when we get to verse five and David says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, when David is describing God as the host preparing a meal, he's saying something about our God that our God is loving, that our God serves. You know, think about this the Lord of the cosmos, the God of all creation, the King of kings, the great I am, puts on an apron, so to speak, and he prepares a table, he prepares a feast. Let that humble you for a second. You know, any idea, this notion that God is a dictator who is in heaven and just demands all of our service is so far from biblical reality. If you read the Bible, what kind of God do we have? We have a God who serves us. A God who knows that life's journeys are so tough and so tiring, and so trying that when you come home, finally one day entering into eternity's rest, what does he have prepared for you? Not a mop, not a sponge, not anything for you to get to work. But he has a table prepared for you because he is a God who has served us. We got another picture of this. In Luke 15, that famous parable, Jesus tells of the prodigal son. If you know the story, the prodigal son, he runs away with his father's inheritance. He spends it on lavish living He realizes I've made a mistake and he comes back. He comes back out of the valley, right? He was in the valley. He was literally in a pig pen in such a low part of life that he was watching the pigs eat and he was envious that he considered the pods they were feasting on to be the food of kings and queens. And so brought out of the valley, he comes back home. And his father, who has every right to say, get out of here. I gave you my inheritance. I gave you everything. You spurned me. You reject me. What does the father exclaim? Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. See, that's the heart of God. A God who welcomes People who've wandered the valley, wandered away from walking them back with a table, a spread, a feast. And so Psalm 23 is giving us a glimpse of this great feast to come. The Lord's Supper, which we're going to partake of, is giving us a glimpse of the feast to come. A feast he's prepared. Which is so important because in this life, we're all looking for something that satisfies and something that nourishes. Our whole lives, we are foraging for food, but it's only in heaven that we abundantly receive everything we've ever been looking for, everything that we truly need. Do you remember that story of Joseph in Genesis? So hated by his brothers, they were envious of him, jealous of him. So they faked his death and sold him into slavery. He was taken down to Egypt by God's providence. He rose through the ranks. He became a prime minister. And this is important because later there was a famine in the land. And so his brothers who thought he was long dead, they came down from Israel to Egypt to buy some food. And Joseph saw them. He immediately recognized them, but they didn't know him. Now imagine that somebody who has wronged you and betrayed you, coming out, begging for some mercy. What would you do to them? And I have a few ideas. Maybe you do as well. You've plotted, you've planned a little vengeance, the anger, how you're gonna get back at somebody. They slighted you, I'm gonna slight them. And yet, what does Joseph do? How does Joseph receive his brothers who have backstabbed him and betrayed him? Not with chains, not with shackles, but with a feast. See, David looks at his brothers who have come back and he reacts with compassion and love. Listen to what Genesis 43 says. And they, his brothers, sat before him, Joseph, the firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table. But Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs and they drank and were merry with wine. And Joseph prepared a meal for those very people who hated him and spurned him and wanted him dead. When he could have put scorpions and spiders on their plates, he put the choicest of food and the best drink of the land. He took what was on his own table and he put it on theirs. See, here's the thing. We've all treated God far worse than Joseph was ever treated by his brothers. We hated God. We rejected God. We ignored God. We countless uh, fail God, betray God. And yet in his lavish grace and mercy, he never treats us as we deserve, but as he delights to. Through Jesus Christ, God forgives us. He welcomes us in, not just into his throne room, into his table to dine with him. And the amazing thing is we don't eat the food that we've brought ourselves. It's not a bring your own lunch. We eat food from the king's table, the most delectable and delicious of food, the richest of all fare. You see, this whole life, what are we doing when we sin against God? We're trying to reach from across our table and take what is his from his table. I mean, that's what sin is, trying to take what belongs to God, a little bit of his glory, a little bit of his honor. We want it for ourselves. We're reaching over. But God is promising us that when when he welcomes us into his meal, we no longer have to reach over because God will take what is on his table and he will give it to us graciously and gladly. We will enjoy this feast. And this cup that we've been carrying around that is once, once was overflowing with the tears of our sorrows will now be overflowing with the abundance of his provision. Our heads, which once dripped with sweat because we're so laboring and toiling in this world to make a name for ourselves, to be a somebody, our heads will now once drip with anointing oil for God as our host will welcome us into his presence. Promising rest and refuge. God is this gracious host who prepares the table for us. And he does it by grace. The question is, do you think much of heaven's hope? Do you think much of the table he is preparing for you? Or are you concerned only with your belly, which is the God of this age? The host prepares a table for you. Here's the second thing the host does. He prepares a home for you. He prepares for us a home. Look with me next at verse six. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The promise of life's pilgrimage is not that you come out beaten and tired and you get to his door and God opens it and opens it, you know, just a little crack. That's how I open the door when the Jehovah's Witnesses come. coming. just a little crack. You see half of my face? God doesn't open the crack. He opens it and he welcomes you in. He invites you to dine in. So you're in the dining room table. After you finish, he doesn't open the door and say, well, pleased to have you here. What does he do? He says, now let me show you to your room because you're not just invited to a table, you're invited to a room in his house that he's prepared for you. We're not just passing guests in the house of the Lord, we're permanent residents. And that's why David says, we shall dwell in the house of the Lord. It is our dwelling place. In the truest sense of the word, our Lord graciously says to us, mi casa es su casa. My house is your house my home, now your home. And that's such a great promise because all of us, we are searching for a home. That's why we're restless on this side of eternity. Our longing to be at a place, belong to a place, a community, somewhere where we are welcomed, where we are safe, we're all searching for that. A place where we aren't judged, a place where we are uh, unconditionally accepted. Because that's what home is. Home is that place where, when you have to dress up nicely to go to work, formally to present yourself, home is a place where you can lounge in a t shirt and your underwear. You know, when you put makeup on and you try to present yourself to the world, home is that place where you can comfortably walk around with a bare face, no eyebrows. (laughs) Home is where you don't need to impress anybody. Because everybody knows who you are and they love you no matter what. You know, we're all longing for home. And the psalmist is saying that home is only found in the presence of the Lord. The God who knows our blemishes, he knows our sins, he knows our imperfections. And yet in Jesus Christ, he loves us and accepts us anyway. And so it's only for those friends who trust in Jesus that are making their way to this home. And God says, I'm calling you to this final destination. And I will ensure, this is the doctrine called the perseverance of the saints. God is saying, I will ensure you get home because I've dispatched two personal Goddy guards to accompany you. Their names, goodness and mercy. And that's why David says, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. You know, when I was in youth group, our youth director, Mr. Doug, uh, was a wonderful sacrificial man. He would pick us all up in the church van before Friday youth meeting. He would teach the study and then he would drop us all individually off. Now, I lived the closest to him and a friend of mine, Deborah, also lived close to him. So, we were always the last two people dropped off. And uh, I remember this. Deborah lived in an apartment complex. And whenever we would get to her place, she would uh, park the van, or or Mr. Doug would stop the van, and then he would tell me to get out and to um, walk with her into the apartment complex, into her building, and make sure that she got home and that I need to see her get into the house. And he always told me, Andrew, this is what a man does. And I always said, well, I'm a boy. (laughs) Every day, every Friday, for years, he did this. Why? What was the point? It was to accompany her in the dark, to protect her from any danger, any threat, to make sure she got home safely. Now, Deborah would always argue, Andrew can't protect me from anybody. I'm here to protect him. (laughs) But I was there, from van door to front door. My job was to walk by her side the whole way so she gets home. The Lord is promising us in verse 5, surely goodness and mercy shall follow you, me, all the days of our lives, ensuring that we will arrive home. Personal bodyguards, which means when adversaries come at you to harm and to hurt, goodness and mercy will be right by your side. When adversities come to distract and to discourage, goodness and mercy will be right there by your side. You see, when the host invites you to his home, he doesn't give you directions and a map and say, well, good luck finding your way here. The host sends a car and a driver. The make and model, goodness, the chauffeur's name, mercy. Goodness and mercy shall follow you all the days of your life, ensuring God ensuring you, you will arrive home to dwell in a room that he has prepared for you. Friends, you need to meditate a bit on this on the house of the Lord, on the room he's prepared. This is one of the highest, the apex of gospel promises. You know, it's J.I. Packard, whose justification is the most primary foundational blessing, but the highest, greatest privilege blessing is adoption. And along and attached to that adoption into God's family is this promise of Jesus Christ that there is a home he's preparing for you. Listen to John chapter 14, where Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled, Believe in me, believe or believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. Consider for a second the magnitude of Jesus' words here. Him saying, I will go ahead of you to prepare a room for you in my Father's house. And ahead of us, he went, because Jesus didn't linger in the green pastures, but he walked straight into the valley. Not the valley of the shadow of death, but the valley of death. And ironically, although a valley descends, Christ ascended into that great valley, the valley of Golgotha, where he died for our sins on a cross. But Jesus did this. He walked through the valley, why? So that he would emerge on the other side in victory and in glory. And in the promise of his resurrection, he arose in a glorified body, but he didn't linger there. But he ascended. He returned. He went home Why? to prepare a room for you. The, the host prepares a table. He prepares a room. And he welcomes you into his feast and he welcomes you into his rest. And that's why David says, and it should be the confession of all of us, I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Do you think often of your heavenly home? Do you think often of the end of life's journey, or are you so consumed with how deep the valleys are or how green the grass is in the pastures? You know, when David says that we shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever, that that idea of forever, eternity, it's humbling for two reasons. One, you can try to wrap your mind around eternity, but there's no way. It's like, it's like the Trinity. You can think of analogies, but they will all fall short. Eternity, you know, we think, you know, I used to think it's like, it's, it, it's like the highest number I can think of, plus one or plus one more or plus infinity. And you can think of all these mathematical scientific equations and, and, and everything, but, but you simply cannot understand. It. It's humbling. But the second reason it's humbling is because if you actually think about eternity, it must change the way that you are living in the present. Because the te- the present is so temporary, it changes the way you view and live in the present world. There were two friends; they were longtime friends. They hadn't seen each other in years. One friend, the visitor, uh, went to his, his old friend's house, and he realized it was quite a, it was a hum- humble abode. Uh, he walked in, and there were three pieces of furniture: there's a table, a bench, and a bookshelf. And the man looked at his friend and said, "Where's all your furniture?" And the man responded, "Well, dear friend, where's your furniture?" The man was puzzled, "My furniture. I'm just passing by. I'm a visitor here, here today, gone tomorrow." And his friend looked at him with a smile and said, "Well, so am I. So am I. We are just visitors. In light of forever, we are here today, gone tomorrow, like a wind, as James says, like vapor we are passing through this life on our way to a greater, better home. One that we cannot secure with money, one that we cannot build with our own hands, but one given to us graciously by the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus welcomes you to his table. He brings you into his house. He makes that which is rightfully his, rightfully yours. His table becomes your table. His home becomes your home. And then the question is in exchange What if ours becomes his? We get everything, his table, his home, they become ours. What if ours become his? Our sin, our guilt, our curse, our debt. And yet Jesus doesn't say, well, I drew the short end of the stick. Oh, this is unfair. No, the gospel says that Jesus gladly took our sins upon himself. He gladly died to death we should have died. So that in exchange, what was ours became his. So that what is his could become yours. So that he could offer you the table. So he could offer you the home. This is the work of grace. Like this is grace. If you don't understand this, you do not understand Christianity. The grace of the host, taking what belongs to him and making it yours And taking only the debt you owe and the curses upon yourself and absorbing that upon himself. That is grace. The question is, do you think much of this? Do you think much of heaven's home? Because if you do, if heaven floods your mind, here's two things that will happen. One, um, you will be rebuked. Here's why. Some of you are enjoying the greenness of the pastures in this life way too much. You're living as if this is all there is. And when you start believing that this life and the joys it's offering, the pleasures it's offering is all there is to life, the hope of heaven rebukes you to say, God has something so much greater in store for you. Don't live for this. On the other hand, thoughts of the hope of heaven relieve you. Because when you're living in this life and you're experiencing and you're enduring so much of the lows of the valley, The shadows not only cast darkness over you, but make you feel chilly to the bone. And you're thinking all there is in life is the valley. The hope of heaven relieves you to say God has so much more in store for you. You see this beautiful truth, it counsels us and it rebukes us and it corrects us all at once. You must believe this as a Christian. This life, The life that we live, it will end. But this life is not the end. Does that make sense? This life will end, but that's not the end. Psalm 23 is telling us there is an eternity afterwards that we will spend in the presence of our heavenly host. We will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So let me close with this. C.S. Lewis, for as many great works as he wrote uh, my favorite is the Chronicles of Narnia. And he ends the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, the last book in the series is called The Last Battle. And in a scene at the very, very end of the book, the children of the story, they've all passed away. And Aslan, you know, the great lion who represents God, he shows up and he actually starts talking about what has happened. And he says, uh, I believe he says to Lucy, that the life that you lived and, and now you've died, you know, that life that you lived you lived in the lands, He called he called it. And then Aslan says, you know, the dread is ended. This is the morning. And then C.S. Lewis now, the author, he inserts now his commentary. And this is how the whole series of the Chronicles of Narnia ends in the last battle. This is what Lewis writes. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story all their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever in which every chapter is better than the one before. That is Christian hope. The life, this life with its pastures and its valleys is nothing but a cover, a title page to the great story God has in store for us when he welcomes us into his presence. And it'll only get better and better into all of eternity so that the bad of this world will slowly fade to nothing but a distant memory. See, this is why Psalm 23 offers such tremendous hope. This is why this song has ministered to the people of God for three millennia to every weak and weary saint on life's pilgrimage. Christian, here's my exhortation. Make it your business. Make it your business to think often of heaven's home and the host of heaven who is waiting for you with table and room. So if someone were to ask you, oh, Christian traveler, Where are you headed? You would respond. That I would dwell in the house of the Lord. Let's pray.